0: So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, starting in the 21st verse and reading all the way through to the 38th. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. The son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, or Ezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of, anybody want to try this? I mean, this is, this is killer. The son of Simeon, the son of Jozek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannon, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmedam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Menah, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Lord, I know that these two segments, the baptism and this genealogy, don't normally seem like they go together. And I pray that you would give me clarity and that you would do what I cannot possibly do, which is to make sense of this. And so I ask that you would speak through me the the, the words that you would have me say. If they're not your words, I don't want to say them. So, Lord, I ask that you would bless this this discussion, um, exposition of this text to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I'd like to start out this morning by rereading just a few of the verses that Brother Clayton read earlier um, from the fifth chapter of Romans. They go like this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, and he's talking about Adam and his active disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, and of course he's talking about Christ and his active obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I know you don't like it when I say this, but I can say the closing prayer now and offer the benediction and we can all go home. Because basically, that's my whole message right there in extraordinarily concise language. Um, Paul is talking about what I think Luke, in a much more extended, expanded form, is bringing out and is the connection between the baptism of the second Adam, as he is brought out, and the genealogy. And I hope that I can make that clear as we go through the text. Now, uh, as far as our our uh, study here of Luke and making our way through um, this gospel, well, we have come to uh, a, a transition. I've been telling you for weeks that we're in a transition. Well, we've come to the end of that transition, a transition between the nativity story and the beginning of Christ's ministry. And during that transition, we have been focusing on John the Baptist, his place in redemptive history, his calling, his life, his words. And, and he's been the focus during this transition, but we're going to wrap that up now today, and our focus is going to turn to the ministry of Christ. And what better way to do that than to have both of these men standing in the Jordan River while Jesus is baptized, really beginning of his business, he must increase and beginning of the wane of did I say business? The beginning of his ministry as John the Baptist's ministry begins to wane. Uh, it's all those names. Who knows what I'm going to say, you know, uh, after reading all those names. But nonetheless... That's what we are seeing. And as part of this, we are going to see the the declaration again of the affirmation of who the Christ child is. So what I want to do is I want to kind of step back and remind you of something that I have brought out over and over again as we have made our way through these first three chapters of Luke. And that is his focus on the attestation or the affirmation of who Jesus is. It has been a major part of what he's done, a major part of the theme, started out with Gabriel Gabriel coming from heaven, telling um, Zechariah and then Mary of who Jesus was going to be, then the meeting between Elizabeth and Mary and John jumps in Elizabeth's womb then the the the, the beautiful songs, first of Elizabeth and then of Mary, her magnificent cat, and then of Zechariah, the Benedictus and then the, the child is born and heaven opens up, the kind of glory of God comes down to attest who he is an angel tells some shepherds who he is and then the heavenly host come to verify that those shepherds go into Bethlehem to find the Christ child we don't hear anything else except the way they affirmed to Mary and Joseph what had just happened in the field Then we had the testimony of Simeon and the testimony of Anna, the testimony of Jesus himself as a 12-year-old when he comes to the temple. And then finally, over and over again, the testimony of John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And all of that is leading up to the most powerful attestation and affirmation that we're going to get of who Jesus is by God the Father and the Spirit as they descend upon him at the um, baptism. And then Luke is going to put that into the context of all human history as he gives us this this um, genealogy. So with that stated, hopefully you'll begin to understand why I'm melding these two together. They're all part of the same concept that Jesus is who he is and melding it into what we will see, his active and passive obedience and the fact that he is the second, the better, the last Adam. And I'll bring that out hopefully as we make our way through the text. But let's first of all just look at the baptism sort of separately. The first thing I want you to notice about the way Luke handles the baptism of Jesus is the brevity. I mean, he just kind of almost skims over it. Two verses in English, 57 words. Well, if if you go to John and, and and you look there, John gives it six verses and um, 156 words in English. If you go to Matthew, Matthew has five verses um, and 124 words. Two times as many as Luke does. So Luke seems to be just sort of brushing past. The, almost as if it's a placeholder. But that's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see the almost nonchalant way that he reports this. Everyone was getting baptized and, and, and oh, Jesus too also got baptized. And, and it's almost as if he doesn't want to give any details whatsoever about the baptism itself and get right to the voice that comes out of heaven. Now, a different commentators and scholars do with this in different ways. Some of them say, well, you really can't handle the Luke's version of the baptism unless you bring the other gospels in. And if all I was doing this morning was talking about the baptism, I would have to do that because Luke doesn't give us many details at all about this baptism. Other people want to say that, well, this is because Luke is once again showing us the humility of Christ. And the fact that Christ is so humble, almost as if he is just kind of standing there waiting for everyone else to get baptized. Well, I don't see it. I'm not going to say that those are wrong. But I think that there's something else here that we want to see from the baptism itself. Um, the fact that Luke wants to get us to... A very important event and those are the words actually that the Father says from heaven and how they relate to the genealogy that follows. So with that said, let's kind of jump in to the text because there's not a whole lot of it as far as the baptism is concerned. Look in the 21st verse. And Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, that's it. That's all really tells us about the actual baptism of Jesus. Now, there there are a couple of things that we want to see. As I said, some commentators say, well, Jesus is being so patient. He's waiting and waiting and waiting until everyone has been baptized. And then he, Jesus, meek and mild, comes up and asks to be baptized. Now, that might, you know, preach well, uh, but but it's not what's going on here. At least not the way that I see it. And But what is going on here is just prior to one of the most profound declarations of the divinity of Christ, we are seeing that for the most part, he's just another face in the crowd. In other words, there's a lot of people there being baptized on that day. A whole mass of humanity. And right in the middle of them is Jesus. And and, and he doesn't seem to stick out. He's also going to be baptized along with all the rest of them. Now, you may remember from the book of Samuel that Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else in the crowd. Not Jesus. Jesus is almost nondescript. Do you remember how Isaiah described him? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, there's nothing special about Jesus as far as his physical appearance is concerned. But oh my goodness, what is about to happen when he gets baptized is unique and is extraordinary. But an attestation is taking place that this is a child, a human being born into, yes, indeed, humble circumstances. And yet he is the divine Son of God. And so those two natures of Jesus get get brought out as we see the beginning of that baptism. Now, Luke does give us some information that no one else does when he tells us that Jesus was praying after the baptism. And, and, and isn't that a good way to start off our discussion of the ministry of Christ? Because guess what? When Jesus prayed, things happened. It was a catalyst to his ministry. Remember when he was standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and he was getting ready to say, Lazarus, come forth." Before he did that, he prayed to his father. Before he fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, with just a couple of pieces of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, he prayed to his father. When he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, when he would take on part of his glory and show it to those three disciples, he went up there to pray. Jesus bathed everything that he did In prayer, what a marvelous example for ministry, folks. That's what we try to do here at New Hope. We try to start everything we do with prayer and end it with prayer. We don't want to make any decisions on our own. We, we want to be followers. We're very happy in being followers. We just want to know the Lord's will. And so we, like Jesus, in fact, if you look at Luke, here this is the beginning of his ministry. We see Jesus praying. The very last thing we're going to see as he hangs on the cross is him praying to his Father, Father, receive my spirit. Okay? So Jesus begins and ends his ministry with prayer. And that's a really good thing for us to do as well. But basically that's it. That's everything Luke has to tell us about the baptism. Now for the affirmation. Now we see the response from heaven to the baptism of Jesus. And this is when we get into the part that I think Luke wants us to see. Look there in the second part of the 21st verse. uh, uh, the, The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. I believe this is the reason for the brevity of Luke's uh, handling of the baptism. He wants to get to this. Because this is one of the great events of all of Jesus' ministry and of extreme importance, and so we want to delve into this and take a closer look at what is happening. The first thing that we see is that heaven opened, and I'll be honest with you—I don't know what that looks like. I, 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 you know, I'm a visual person; I like to visualize things. Well. What does it look like when heaven opens? Uh, and did it open to anyone else or did it just open to Jesus? Is the only one who could see it open? Now, this is not the only time we read that heaven opens. For, for instance, when Stephen the martyr is being stoned, he said, I saw heaven opened, and there's the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, he sees in that advocate role. Um, also, John, in, in, in the book of Revelation, saw a door in heaven and saw heaven open... And so we see that on a variety of occasions that, that heaven opened. Uh, but what does it look like? Mark gives us a little bit of information. He says that as Jesus was baptized, came out of the water, it was like the sky was torn open. And, and, and I, I don't get that to mean a violence so much as I do the, 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 the speed, the suddenness of which you saw heaven. And 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 even though I can't visualize it in my mind, it kind of gives me the impression that heaven is a dimension and not just a place that is so far away. Actually, this is Kay's idea, and I've shared it with you many times. This was her view of heaven, and, and it is my view now, is that heaven is not on top of the stars. It is not someplace so far and distant away that it is unreachable, untouchable. In fact, it's right there on the other side of that wall. It's just a different Dimension. It's here. God is close. He is near us. And so therefore, heaven is just another dimension. We're the ones who live in Disney World. That's the reality of all, all creation it is heaven, and it is right there. So regardless of how Jesus could see heaven, heaven opened. Now, do you remember back in the 2nd? chapter when heaven spilled over. Uh, and notice the, the similarities and the differences. When, when the, the angels came down and the Shekinah, the glory of God, shone all around the angel came to tell the shepherds and all of a sudden the angelic host, the army of heaven, coming to establish the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that just spilled over and the joy was something that heaven could not hold. This time we're going to get a different manifestation of heaven. It's opening for a different reason, and it is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is what we read about that, that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Um, Luke's the only one who tells adds that in bodily form to us, uh, for us. And, and what that does, that takes out the possibility that this is symbolic. You know, that in some way the Holy Spirit appeared or that it was an apparition or a shadow. In some bodily form, most likely an actual dove, the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ. So what does that mean? Why, why a dove? Why, what, what is the significance of, of, of a dove? Well, people kind of pull from Scripture the various things about a dove. We know from the flood that a dove represented the grace, the mercy of God as he caused the waters to recede. We hear that we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So doves represent innocence, they represent purity. But even though those are important and infinite qualities or qualities That Jesus has in an infinite measure. I don't think that's exactly what the reason that we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Because you see, doves are also gentle. They, they, They almost like feathers. They just kind of float. They have this sort of gentle nature. And so in other words, when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus... It was not violent. And I know I've shared this with you multiple times. But it bears repeating. It wasn't a violent. It wasn't any violence when the Spirit came upon Jesus. It was smooth. It was gentle. Now the reason this is so important. The reason this is a vital distinction. Is because over the millennia in the church. So many heresies have developed about this particular event. That Jesus was just a man up until now. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And he became some kind of mongrelized God-man at that time. The Spirit giving him special powers and accomplishing many things through him and then leaving him as he was on the cross. That is not what is happening here and that's heretical. There was never a time that Jesus was not God. From an egg in Mary's womb all the way through his development, there was never a time that it was not fully God, fully man in that most unique of all beings that has ever lived on this planet. And so therefore, that's not what's happened. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people in Scripture... There's almost always violence. If you go back and look at Samson and Saul and David in the Old Testament, we are told that the Holy Spirit rushed upon them. That's a word that means like a violent wind that came upon them. And the reason is, is because you have absolute holiness and absolute defileness and, and or Defile, defilement, I guess it would be, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon that which is defiled, there is a there, there's a, a problem that exists. It, it, it's it's like it's like opening an, an airplane door at thirty thousand feet. You know, when the pressure equalizes, it's going to be violent. They're going to suck you. It's going to suck you right out of the plane. But if you open the same door on the same plane when it's on the ground. There's no uh, violence because they're the same. It's the same pressure. When you have a hot front and a cold front that meet each other, you get hurricanes. When you have a hot front and a hot front that meet each other, nothing happens. So, in other words, when the Spirit came upon Jesus, it came like a dove. No, no, no violence. No, no Pentecost. Remember what happened at Pentecost when the Spirit came in and it was a violent wind. Well, not not for Jesus, you see. So far from this being the beginning of his divinity, this is actually a, the way I read it anyway, this is a statement of his divinity, another affirmation by the Holy Spirit that, yeah, I'm here to to minister, to empower, I'm here to be with, I'm here to uh, enhance the ministry, to bear testimony of who he is, but I am not here to make this man divine because he's already divine, witnessed by the Spirit coming upon him like a dove. Well, the Spirit comes like a dove, and then we hear a voice from heaven. And this voice is the quintessential affirmation. When God speaks from heaven, that affirms without a shadow of a doubt... Who Jesus is. Now, it's not the first time that's happened. or Well, I'm sorry. It's not the last time that will happen. We will see it happen several times in Jesus' ministry, at the Feast of Booths, in the 12th chapter of John, at the end of his earthly ministry. The heavens are going to have a voice from heaven. Uh, at the transfiguration, very similar words are going to come. But over and over again, God has affirmed that this is my son. This is my son. And, and, and he is here at my bequest. But it's what this words say that I think is so significant. And I think, honestly, I can't prove this, but I think Luke has been hurrying us to this. When the voice from heaven, which we know is the Father, he doesn't identify himself as his Father, but he says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Three things we learn about Jesus. There are three essential things. First of all, that he's the Son of God. Right? That's huge. God himself affirms that this is my son. You can't get any stronger affirmation than that. But secondly, and this is going to become important later, it's my beloved son. Brothers and sisters, we cannot comprehend as human beings the love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a white, hot love that defines what love actually is. And it is a needless love. In other words, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is such love that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need someone to love. That's not why he made us. And he doesn't need someone to love him. God is completely self-contained in his love. He loves the Son with that amazing love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is so amazing beyond that is what Jesus said in the high priestly prayer. That because of him, because of his active and passive obedience, we're going to get to those, now that love is given to believers who know and love Jesus Christ, who have been adopted into the family of God because of what Jesus does. Brothers and sisters... When we say God is love, what we're talking about is a love that loves without need. And and just try to put that in a human context, we can't. All of our loves have a need in some sense behind it. God's love is just plain old love. And all that he did and all that he manifested through Jesus Christ, both the passive and the active obedience, all is out of divine love. And then he said, In you I am well pleased. Why did he say that? Why is the father pleased with the son? Well, I'm going to bait you. I'm not going to tell you just yet. I'm simply going to put it this way. The father is pleased with the son because of the baptism of the second Adam. And I got to explain what that means. But that's all I'm going to tell you right now. He is pleased with his son because of the active and the passive obedience of the son manifested and reflected in the baptism of the second Adam. Which leads us into the rest of the text. Our genealogy. Which starts in verse 23. So I read it first. Let me read it again, but I'm going to read it in a slightly different way. And I'm not doing this just because it it was hard for me to read it the first time. I'm going to do it because I'm trying to make a point to you about genealogies. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son as it was opposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Malachi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. Jump to the 38th verse. The son of Enos the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, There's something we need to realize about Hebrew genealogies. Genealogies are simply a recounting of a historical, biological progression of generations from one to the next. And the Hebrews were actually very good at keeping detailed genealogies. But when we see genealogies in Scripture... They're not there for that purpose. We don't have a genealogy in Scripture so that we will be able to count the number of generations, so that we can date the world, or so that we can see this or that historically. Because you don't have to look very deeply to see that many of the generations are skipped, and and sometimes that it almost looks like they're picking and choosing what they want to include in the genealogy. So when we talk talk about genealogies in scripture, we are talking about something that tells a story and is not necessarily the biological or historical gener- flow of generations. Now, now, those without a really full understanding of this will try to convince you, oh, we found an error. Look at this, look, look, especially the Matthew's genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew. We're going to make a comparison in Luke's genealogy here. Look at all the differences in this. Obviously, they just messed up and they didn't realize what they were doing. And so they got it all wrong. This means that the Bible is not inerrant or infallible because this is a big glaring mistake. That is so arrogant. Plus, it's also wrong. Because, you see, if, if I can explain it this way the analogies of scripture compared to a detailed historical and biological narrative uh, a, a genealogy is kind of like a technical document that explains how something works compared to a poem now a poem may cover the same ground as the technical document but it's not trying to be absolutely accurate there's a reason there's a purpose for the poem there 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 is something it's trying to get across and that's exactly the same that is here with these genealogies. And, and and the great example that we have before us, uh, indeed, are the genealogies of Matthew and the genealogy here of Luke. Because you have to go very far to see, whoa, these are different. I mean, from Abraham to David, they're, they're uh, identical, those 14 names, but that's it. I mean, only a couple of names are the same, and every other name is different. So, What? They're supposed to both be the genealogies of Jesus Christ. So how do you reconcile these two together? Well, traditionally, the way that most scholars and many people have reconciled this is to say, well, Matthew has given us the genealogy of Joseph, while Luke is giving us the genealogy of Mary. And, and actually, those who adhere to it sometimes get extremely dogmatic about that. And they say, hey, listen, look at Luke. He's been all about Mary, barely mentioned Joseph before now. And he's sort of, sort of been focusing on women, bringing Elizabeth into it, bringing Anna into it. So, therefore, it would be clear to them that this is a genealogy of Mary. And, and actually, that makes sense, but there's also some problems with it. After all, Joseph's name is listed here and not Mary's. After all, genealogies traditionally in the Hebrews were almost always the genealogy of the father, the legal father of, of, of the child. And, and, and you can't really say that Luke is all about women and Matthew isn't because Matthew includes multiple women in his genealogy and Luke doesn't. So what's the answer Well, I have to agree with Dr. Sproul. He puts it this way. Um, He says, I don't know how to resolve the question, and I leave it in the hands of the experts who deal with such questions. That's a good way of saying, I don't know. But he goes on and says this, Though I like to think that Luke's version is from Mary's side of the family, I can't prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now... I would have to agree with that. I I, I like the idea of it being Mary's genealogy, and it actually helps a lot of things if indeed it is, but you can't prove it. So you don't really get dogmatic in my mind about things that you can't prove. But there are some things we can prove, And, and here's the important thing, that there's a different story being told by these two different genealogies. Matthew has a story he wants to tell. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews and so therefore it's very important to him to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah the son of Abraham, the son of David. So he starts with Abraham and runs down through the generations and ends up in Jesus to make sure that we know that Jesus is legally of the clan of Judah and therefore rightfully king of kings and lord of lords that that was greatly important to 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 um matthew and that's why you see matthew talks so much about fulfilled prophecies and and and, and jesus fulfilling all of the uh, of the requirements of being the messiah well, well luke is a gentile writing to gentiles and his focus is different he doesn't just want to establish that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Also, that's important to him. He wants talking to his Gentile audience to tell them that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that every race and ethnicity and language and person is able to um, to be saved by the one who came to save not just the Jews, but the entire world. And so, therefore, they, they, they have different ideas. But there's one thing about Luke's. Um, genealogy I think is really important I want to bring out. Notice that Matthew's, we don't have it in front of us, but notice that Matthew's starts with Abraham and ends with Jesus. Well, Luke starts with Jesus, runs us back all the way to the garden, to, to, to Adam, and then to God. Now, what I did when I read that genealogy very quickly for you, and I just read the 23rd, 24th, and 38th verses, you know, I, I was making a point. That's, that's a valid genealogy. I, I'm reading those are names from scripture, but I left a lot of names out because I wasn't necessarily interested in those names. I wanted to get right to the source. So that's what Luke is doing. He starts with Jesus and he ends with God. Now, there's a couple of things that are going to be brought out by that genealogy. First of all, Jesus is the second Adam because Because he leads right up to Adam, but Jesus and Adam are the only two men who ever walked the earth that have one thing in common, and that is that they are both sons of God. They can both say, I am the son of God. God is my father, and no one else. And that is the reason I believe a comparison is being made here between Adam and what he did and Jesus and what he did. And also it's an affirmation because not only is Jesus the son of Adam which makes him human, but he is also the son of God which makes him not human, okay? So with that said, let's take a brief look. I'm not going to go into any detail here. Let's just take a brief look at the way that this is organized starting back in the 23rd verse. Now, when um, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Well, that's valuable information. I mean, that's the only place that we find out how old Jesus was. And that helps us calculate his age when he was crucified, when he was born, and and all those kinds of things. Now, you should know that the Greek is not that accurate. It it doesn't exactly 30 years old. It could have been in his 30s, uh, in his early 30s. But I kind of think that he actually was 30 years old because if you go back to numbers in the Old Testament, you find that 30 was the age that a priest began his service for the Lord between 30 and 50 and Jesus, who was a high a priest, the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, it just seems fitting because we're going to talk about fulfilling all righteousness. It just seems fitting that Jesus would have started his ministry at the same time that priests did um, at, at age 30. Well, then he goes on as he begins to lead into the um, the genealogy, saying, being the son as was supposed, now the editors of the ESV put that in parentheses, I don't think the other English versions do, at least the ones I checked, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, or Heli. Now, now, what, what that does, actually doesn't that open the door that this could be Mary's, um, genealogy? Okay, it was supposed that this was the genealogy of Joseph, but he wasn't, because Joseph wasn't actually his father, and both Joseph and Mary knew this. Now, What it also brings to our attention is everyone else thought that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph. I mean, we get statements like this all through Scripture, reading from John 6. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Everyone supposed that Jesus, because he was raised in Joseph's household, was indeed the biological son of Joseph, but he's not. And that's the point that Luke is making with this all-important genealogy. Now, from that point, we jump to the important part of it, which is the 38th verse, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke has taken us back to the garden, folks, as he introduces the ministry of Jesus and he explains the significance of Of Jesus' baptism. Why on earth was Jesus baptized by a man who proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Why was Jesus baptized? Well, I think Luke tells us in the genealogy by taking us all the way back. Like I said, he takes us first back to Adam, the first Adam. Now, you need to realize something else about Jesus and Adam. Um, and, and forgive me, we're, we're going to have a theology lesson this morning. And, and, and if you go to sleep when you hear the word theology, shame on you. And I mean it. I, I'm saying shame on you. Because what I'm about to reveal to you is of huge importance to your salvation. And your eternity. It doesn't mean that if you don't know this, you're not going to be saved. But this explains why you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, can actually stand before God in heaven. Gain entrance into the new Jerusalem. So anyway, with, with that said. He's the son of Adam. Adam and Jesus were both under a covenant. Now, if I wanted to, I could take you through the covenants. I mean, it's pretty amazing. There were basically six covenants. We've had five of the names listed here. Jesus and David and Moses and Abraham and Noah and... no. I left Moses out. Moses wasn't in there. I'm sorry. He's the one that was left out because we end up with with Adam. And Adam, as far as the humanity was concerned, was the only covenant of works. He was a covenant based on works. All the rest of them are covenants that in one way or another are variations of the covenant of grace. But Adam and... The second Adam, born of woman, born under the law, was also subject to the covenant of works. Now, as far as Adam was concerned, the covenant of works was real simple. To use the language of life explored, I'm giving you a paradise of yes and a single tree of no. I'm giving you one single tree that you cannot eat from. So it is a covenant. You live. You enjoy. You're my ambassadors. You can have the whole kingdom. Everything is laid out before you. There's only one thing that I say that you cannot do. As long as you do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will live. If you eat of it, you will die. Of course, Satan comes along and tempts Eve. And the first thing that he says, oh, oh, you won't die. Don't worry about it. You're not gonna, that's not gonna happen to you. And in fact, the reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Therein, brothers and sisters, is the egregious sin of humanity, the desire to be their own gods. But anyway, Adam failed. Adam miserably failed, of course. Eve ate of the fruit and gave it to Adam. And Adam ate of the fruit. So the covenant of works was broken. And if you broke the covenant of works, as God says, you will surely die. Well, they did. Immediately, they died spiritually. That is when humanity fell and became totally depraved in all aspects of who they are because they had eaten of the forbidden fruit. Now... God could have taken their physical lives there and then in there, but he didn't. Why? Well, because he already knew that the second Adam was coming. And that there would be a second chance for all of humanity to be redeemed and returned to the garden through the active and passive obedience of the second Adam. And so therefore, he played, made it clear as he handed out the great curses. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking about the second Adam. See, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the second Adam, we're talking about a second chance. I also want you to know what Paul says to the Corinthians. He puts it this way. Let me see. Where did I put it? Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not only the second chance. He's the last chance. He's the last chance that humanity has to avoid the condemnation and the wrath of God. And so the first Adam fell and all of redemptive history since then is leading up to the time that God would once again change the options, change the landscape, the spiritual landscape of humanity by sending his son. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that I'm speaking theologically But let's let let let's get back here. Let's get back to the question that I asked you earlier. Why was Jesus baptized? What does it mean? What was the significance of his baptism, and why was he baptized? And what and and what way does he him being the second Adam add into that? Well, before we can answer that question, we have to talk about the obedience of Jesus. There's two different kinds of obedience that theologians talk about when we talk about Jesus. The passive obedience and the active obedience. Now, I've mentioned it several times, but let me kind of explain what that means. The passive obedience of Jesus is his trip to the cross. He came for the purpose of forgiveness of sins, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? ...to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his passive obedience. Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? The answer from heaven is silence. And so he knows there's no other way. And so he passively goes to the cross. Could he have called down legions of angels... ...and changed the whole scope of things? Absolutely. Could he have come down from the cross... ...as those mockers who were goading him... ...told him to do? Absolutely. Did he know why? Passive obedience. The passive obedience is reason that he came to be baptized according to John's baptism because it was an act of obedience and repentance even though Jesus didn't need to repent. So anything that led Jesus to the cross so that he could atone for the sins of those who put their trust in in, in him. If you trust Jesus Christ as your savior, then he paid for your sins. He took your sins upon him as he hung on that cross and God poured out his fierce wrath and eternity of wrath on that person so that your sins would be forgiven once and for all and done with. That's passive obedience of Christ. And you are saved. You're forgiven by the passive obedience of Christ. But be careful and listen to what I say. That doesn't get you into heaven. Okay? It keeps you out of hell. But it doesn't get you to heaven. You see, if you go back and read 22nd chapter of Revelation... You'll hear that nothing defiled is ever going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely pure. And all immorality and idolaters and all of those are outside of of, of of God's presence, and so therefore, nothing that is sinful or defiled will ever stand in the presence of God. Now, you're a forgiven sinner if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're still a sinner. And even forgiven sinners are not going to stand in the presence of God. You need something else. Let me explain in a very bad analogy... I just want you to imagine that a man was an embezzler, embe- embezzled millions of dollars from his company. Let's say it's a government agency. Millions of dollars he embezzles, he gets caught, he goes to jail, he serves 10 years, and he is released. Your debt to humanity is paid. You are free. You are no longer held guilty for that sin, that transgression. You paid it off, and off you go into the world, and you walk into my office and and a apply for a job as my bookkeeper well you're forgiven You, you, you you paid your debt yes but do I want to put you in charge of my finances you're an embezzler you always will be an embezzler you're stained you're defiled that name will follow you you're a sinner you always will be a sinner that will follow you. How on earth are you going to stand in the presence of an Almighty, All Holy God when you have a history of sinfulness behind you? The active obedience of Christ, and that's what's happening at the at the at the, at the baptism. You see, it's the active obedience, and th- what that means is the zeal. That Christ had to keep his father's word. Every jot and tittle. Every single thing. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized, but you do. Jesus doesn't need to repent, but you do. Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven, but you do. And his active obedience is crafting, weaving together a robe of righteousness that he then offers and gives to you. So when you stand at the gate of the kingdom of heaven and ask for entrance, it is not your old sinful self who has been forgiven that is seen who will stand before God. But it is rather a perfectly, completely righteous person. Because you don't have your own righteousness. You are clothed in the righteousness that was won by the active obedience of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is why it is so important that Jesus says to John the Baptist, when John the Baptist says, oh, wait a minute. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And remember what Jesus said to him? Let it be so for now. Why? To fulfill All righteousness. I don't need righteousness. He doesn't have to do that. He did it for you and He did it for me. So what does the Father mean when He says, in you I am well pleased? When, when, when he looks at Jesus in the Jordan River being baptized after he's baptized and Jesus is praying and the voice comes out of heaven and he says, you are my beloved son and I am pleased in you. What is he pleased in? The fact that Jesus is being righteous? No, God already knows he's righteous. The father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Okay, the word became flesh and traveled and among us. We have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. God already knows that Jesus is perfectly righteous. God already knows he's not going to sin. He doesn't need to be pleased with Jesus because Jesus was, was, was being righteous and good. He is pleased with the Son because of his passive and active obedience on your behalf cause of the love of god so what does this mean to you haven't you been listening where have you been for the last 20 minutes if you ask that question what does this mean to you it means everything it means life and death it means eternity in heaven or hell It means being in the presence of God or being cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You cannot stand in the presence of God unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Period. And so it means everything to you that Jesus was proactively, actively obedient on your behalf so that you could stand in front of a holy God. Now, you're forgiven, Because of his passive obedience, he paid for your sins so that you wouldn't go to hell. But he provided you with his righteousness when he lived the perfect life. Now, if you're a believer, (laughs) what do you do with that? Especially when you consider what the father said to the son. You're my beloved son. I love you with a deep Love that no human being can possibly comprehend. I love you so much that I am pleased with the fact that you are accomplishing the task that I sent you to do. So that these people who I really don't need, I don't need to love them and I don't need their love. But because I am love, that love is expressed and my sending my son to die on a cross and to live a perfect life so that you can spend an eternity with me. How do you respond to that? Drop to your knees and praise the God of heaven in absolute awe. Do you realize how little we think about that? I know that so many of you are going through so many trials and tribulations. Our family is too. I know what it's like to go through times of the valleys, what's going to get you through that? What is it that is going to get you through triumphantly? Not yourself, not your own strength, but it's the love of God. It is to bask, it is to to inundate yourself, to fall into, to live, to surround yourself with the love that is already there, the love of God, because the love of God is never, ever, ever going to forsake you or abandon you. If you're not a believer, I'm not going to pull any punches with you. I hope you've kind of figured that out by now. If you're not a believer, you're lost. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're condemned. If you are not protected by the passive and active obedience of Jesus Christ, then there is no way that you will ever see the kingdom of heaven. It simply won't happen. So how should you respond to this? But that's the reason John the Baptist is here. That's the reason Jesus is getting baptized for you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent and be baptized. Turn your heart and your mind and your soul to God. What did we read earlier from Isaiah? Return to me because I am the God of salvation. And that's the only way that you will benefit from the greatest gift that God has given you. And the greatest gift that God has given you is the baptism of the second Adam through his passive and active obedience. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, how can we do anything but fall to our knees and thank you? What can we do? What can we say? How can we articulate the gratitude that we have. It's fallen human gratitude, and so therefore it pales. It, it, It is cheap and tinny compared to the love that sent your son and the love that he expressed every moment of every day as he resisted every temptation to craft and weave a robe of righteousness for us so that we be united with you. Lord, I can't comprehend that love. And I can only pray that there will be no one who's made it this far through this message who doesn't know you, who will not come to you in repentance and beg for your forgiveness and accept your passive and active obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.